0: Hi, this is Josh Marshall. This is the Josh Marshall podcast. We have, today we got a bunch of things we're going to talk about around the topic of this infrastructure bill. And when I say infrastructure bill, I'm kind of talking about the meta-infrastructure bill, which really what, what I mean by that is Joe Biden's infrastructure agenda proposal that he... That the White House then divided up into the American Jobs Plan and the American Families Plan, which is sort of titles for what we've now come to call hard infrastructure and soft infrastructure. So basically, the first being, uh, you know, surface transportation infrastructure, possibly also the the climate component of that, which which can feed into surface infrastructure rail uh, you know things to uh prioritize electric cars stuff like that and then and then soft infrastructure which may also you know climate may come in there but is more space is basically um social safety net and 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 social spending uh the caring economy stuff like that and and then we have a second dynamic of that, which is this kind of two-step process, the sort of, you know, linkage and, and in tandem where what we have gravitated towards is a model where you're going to do kind of an infrastructure, hard infrastructure mini bill that is bipartisan. And then everything that you can't get you know republicans and democrats t- to agree on you put that into uh reconciliation and obviously that is, the issue there is this uh you know 60 vote set of rules and 50 vote set of rules so you've got you've got the big picture of all the things that joe biden proposed which runs into trillions of dollars you know i i lose track of all the different overlapping proposals but i think you know you're talking probably a good four and to some people as much as six trillion dollars of 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 uh of spending so uh we're gonna get into all sorts of aspects of that and kind of like is this is this bipartisan mini bill still is that still happening um was it ever happening you know because we got in that whole thing like ever. you know they have like uh everybody's all excited and everybody, you know, they have a little, uh, I don't know if it's Rose Garden, but, you know, White House press conference. And, and then suddenly it turns out that they're all upset because he said he wouldn't vote just one of them and blah, 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 blah. And again, sort of like, was there ever an agreement? And is it really true that Biden uh, saying what they all knew in advance in a, in, in maybe a slightly different way, really kind of upset the apple cart and, and, and critically. Again, we we don't really know there ever was an agreement. We had five Republican senators who participated in negotiating this. And I think we're pretty, you know, pretty openly committed. Yes, we're for this. And they supposedly spoke for six other Republican senators who we never really quite, with with a couple of exceptions, really got a clear sense uh, that they were really on board. And if they weren't on board, the whole thing's moot because you need ten, at least ten Republican senators. So if that falls by the wayside, is the whole thing done? Does that mean, you, you know, does since uh, Mansion and Cinema need, you know, need their the the bipartisan box checked? Does everything fall apart? Well, we're going to get into all of that. Um, and then we're also going to get into the fact that, you know, uh, Democrats begged and pleaded for Republicans to have uh, a Jan 6 commission that they would have veto rights over and they wouldn't. And so now Nancy Pelosi is saying, OK, fine, we're just going to do a real investigation. So great. You had your chance too too late. And that's that, I guess, is going to get voted on this afternoon. We're recording this episode uh, at noon. We started a few minutes after noon on Wednesday. So it's happening Wednesday afternoon. Presumably that just goes through on a, on a straight partisan vote. But, uh, lo- you know, a lot of dynamics to discuss there. We're going to get to, your, um, get to your, your reader questions. And we may even we'll probably remind you of our, of, our, uh, of our theme song contest, which, like, we're really getting a lot of entries now. Coming in like fast and furious. Uh, but before that, remember that the Josh Marshall Podcast is brought to you by Grady's Cold Brew Ice Coffee. Grady's Cold Brew is here to help. Actually, wait a second. I've read this a few times. You know what? There's, there's multiple summer Grady's ad copy. So I'm not going to be like a creature of habit here and just keep reading the same (laughs) one. Experience the freshest way to cold brew the summer with Grady's Cold Brew Kit. The ultra-convenient all-in-one kit comes packed with Grady's famous New Orleans-style coffee blend of 100% Arabica beans and imported French chicory. No need for any equipment. Just add water to the reusable spigot pouch to breathe to brew 36 cups of bold, velvety smooth iced coffee. And the best part, no wait no more waiting in lines or paying coffee shop prices. Grady's pours directly from your fridge and costs less than a buck a cup. If you're ready to give it a swirl, get 25% off your first order at gradyscoldbrew.com with promo code TPM. That's gradyscoldbrew.com with promo code TPM. I was I was gonna you know, we're, we're now all in that phase where Um, As annoying as it is to pay those those jacked up uh, coffee shop prices and not get the great deal you get on Grady's Cold Brew uh, and wait in lines and all that kind of stuff that some of us are kind of like, man, I'm kind of nostalgic for waiting in lines. (laughs) Because <laughs> I've I've spent, you know, I've spent a year and a half sitting in my house uh, drinking Grady's, which is great. But, you know, it, it's people want to people want to socialize. So it's OK if you want to go to a coffee shop a few times because, you know, we're kind of we're supposedly we're coming out of this pandemic. And that's a whole other not something I think we're going to talk about a great deal uh, today. But that kind of remains sort of the the um, the topic of 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 the year of everything right now. It's such a such a I, I don't know what I don't know everybody else but there are few times in your life when you when you live through big historical events like big historical events ones that are kind of even hard to imagine and like you know you have something like 20 years ago you had something like 9 eleven that was a big big historical event and in some ways its greatest competen- com- uh it, its greatest impact is the things that came in its wake. The US invaded Afghanistan. The US invaded Iraq. I mean, it, we can get into w- w- why there was any, you know, w- why that led to us invading Iraq. But the reality is it did. And yet, for the vast majority of people in the country, 9 11 is just something they watched on TV, really. But this is like everybody, you know, everybody in the country kind of locked down. And now we're kind of getting back to things that were just totally normal. So, anyway. Lot going on. Kate, please stop me before I before I talk for the entire episode.
1: <laughs> well, I think we'll start with infrastructure, which has been kind of a day-to-day roller coaster since the it was announced that you know the the bipartisan group of senators in the White House had agreed on a deal on the framework. Um, and then the contents of that deal became clear in the next days, but kind of the emotional journey of this agreement so far, and the complementary reconciliation bill has been, you know, just kind of interesting to witness. You know, I was on the Hill um, a couple times last week, but I was there on Thursday, and I caught up with um, Senator Tom Tillis from. North Carolina, kind of shortly after that Rose Garden event you mentioned, where there were five Republicans, um, you know, kind of heralding the deal and a great, you know, claps for bipartisanship event kind of thing. And, you know, we wanted to be sure that the other Republicans who were the negotiators on that deal were still All in, you know, trying to discern was that event just that those five were just being ambassadors for the whole group or kind of had the others um, had a change of heart. And so I talked to Tillis and he was like, you know, all for it, plan to support it. Glad Biden came out endorsing it kind of thing. And then minutes after, you know, we saw the statement from Lindsey Graham, who was also one of the negotiators in that group, saying you know, outraged that
0: was was Graham before McConnell. Yeah, Who he put was. Out sta- okay, I wasn't sure about that because mm-hmm. I had. Rem- I mean, you were there. I, I wasn't paying that close attention, but at least the thing that registered to me first was was when McConnell put out his statement. But yeah. Graham, but Graham went first. I'm pretty
1: sure it was Graham first because I. You would
0: know. I, I was not paying it that close attention to the.
1: Yeah, comment. because I wanted to talk to him too, but he um, was on the phone when he walked by me, and anyway, he kind of outraged at being, you know, quote unquote, extorted the idea that um, all, you know, all of a sudden Democrats have decided to link the bipartisan deal and the reconciliation bill and that they kind of, you know, McConnell took the same posture that they were hoodwinked. Like we thought we were working on this bipartisan deal in good faith. And then you pull out this partisan bill out of nowhere and, you know, all this kind of stuff. And now the root of that, just to put everyone on the same page is that Democrats want to m- make sure that they're keeping both the progressive and moderate factions of the party together on both of these bills. And the way to do that, um, that they've decided is to link the two, meaning that they'll get, hopefully they're trying to get progressive votes on the bipartisan deal. Um, but while assuring those progressives that a vote on that scaled down bill does not preclude the more ambitious reconciliation bill. Um And that by linking the two, they're also trying to guarantee that moderates don't just kind of slink away after getting a win on the bipartisan deal and decide they don't want to stomach a four or five, six trillion dollar reconciliation package, however big that may be. So Democratic leadership, you know, to give them credit, has really not been coy about this at all. Um, And as Pelosi made clear, we will not consider the bipartisan bill in the House until we see the reconciliation bill as well. Um, so that was the posture they took. Republicans are feigning this outrage, which really is feigning because there is just no, there's no doubt that everybody knew that this was how it was going to work. I put out an article um, a few days ago that kind of laid out the distinct on the record examples we have of McConnell, Roy Blunt, Cassidy, all these like Republicans. Almost
0: suggesting it at, at some right. point. Not just like saying, yes, we know that's happening. Almost like saying, hey, why don't you do this?
1: Exactly. Uh, you
0: know, yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Being like, work with us on this and then do whatever you want in reconciliation. Like that was not a controversial thing to say until right. Democrats kind of made their strategy. I don't know. Reemphasize the strategy after the deal.
0: Yeah, I think. Well, I guess one part of this that um, one part of this that is sort of it. it it's. It's certainly not the most important part, but this whole idea of you're extorting us, you kind of, you know, you pulled a fast one, you know, we agreed, and suddenly you're adding conditions, all this kind of stuff. This idea of extorting is 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 (laughs) the mechanics of it are just weird at a certain level because Democrats aren't adding any conditions to Republicans. They're they're not saying like, oh, you know, suddenly you've got to do this, or kind of like, you know, we're 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 only going to, you know, I'll veto your bipartisan bill if you don't also vote for our reconciliation. It is an agreement with other Democrats. Mm -hmm. It assumes that Republicans are going to, uh, you know, aggressively oppose and politic against and everything the reconciliation bill. So even so set aside that they knew it was happening, Set you know, all that kind of stuff. The, The extorting thing is just Again, Logic is sort of the least important part of these things, but it's just kind of weird because it it doesn't ask that. It 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 just has nothing to do with them. It's sort of like, I mean, maybe if you want to use that language, maybe they're extorting Joe Mansion. <laughs> yeah. But like right? it, you know, it it it's, it's just it's one of the sort of the side weirdnesses to this to this whole thing.
1: No, that's absolutely one of my kind of favorite parts of this dynamic because usually when you have Something that is clearly politically disadvantageous to the party. They try, you know, both parties do this, but they try to put on some kind of public facing argument that is more than just you know, this is going to be a win for the other side and we don't want to see that. You know, you usually right. try to concoct something that's like, oh, bipartisanship or honesty in negotiations, which they're doing kind of, but exactly what you're saying. You you poke it a little bit and you're like, the only way this is extortion is if, you know, you're basically dead set against giving the president a win on both of these pieces of legislation, which they are, but it's just kind of funny to have that be the private argument and basically also the public, the public facing argument. argument. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: Well, I guess the I mean there's certainly and this is what is so weird and fluid about these negotiations that there was a major argument among Republicans or you know not argument in the sense of controversy but one of their arguments was hey, let's 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 be kind of generous on this bipartisan bill, you know, in relative terms and we'll, we'll sabotage the, rec- the the rest of it because you know we'll kind of will put the moderates in a position that they'll say hey it, this is pretty good maybe this is enough you know we're doing a lot like like we don't need that other thing and and you'll kind of uh, you know not only will you as republicans you know prevent a a a big bill you will also sort of turn the democratic party against itself create this big factional battle which both parties are always trying to do you're always trying to kind of find the you know, find the fissures within the, uh, you know, within your opposite party and exploit them and draw them out. You know, that's, that's normal. So it's, it, it, uh, that was kind of their plan. And my, and my sense is that, oh, I guess we have, we have a, we, we have the why McConnell let this get so far question coming up, don't we? Right. Okay. So we'll leave to that, but I have my own ideas about, um, you know, just, just what were all the different players thinking here right. when you got to that purported deal, right? Right. Uh, yeah. a week ago.
1: And then I guess the other events we should just kind of hit on the infrastructure talks is over the weekend, Joe Biden put out a statement, which a lot of people have characterized as a walk back. That's not really how I read it, but basically clarifying statements he made, um, where he basically said that he, you know, he would not sign the bipartisan deal without the reconciliation bill. Which is, you know, like we said, that's essentially what Pelosi said. That's kind of also the posture of Democratic leadership. But I guess the Republicans, particularly those involved in the negotiations, went bananas and, you know, got mad about it. And reportedly, you know, Biden and his team kind of spent the weekend working the phones, making sure the bipartisan deal didn't crumble on the spot. And then he put out this really long statement where, You know what I kind of took away from it is he's reemphasizing the linkage of those two bills. You know, I think a lot of people focused on the one line he said, which was that he wouldn't veto the bipartisan bill. You know, if it gets to his desk.
0: Oh, oh, oh! Right, right, right. In the in the follow up, yes, yes, right in the follow up, yeah.
1: Um, But the majority of that statement was all about how he sees those two things as connected. And even though he kind of shifted the onus back onto Congress to, you know, send him the bills, which, you know, he should, but um, I would not call it a walk back, but that's kind of.
0: Well, I think it's, it's a walk. it, It is because, you know, I did a few posts about this, that by, by Sunday or Monday, you had like, you know, places like Axios or political or whatever saying like, you know, the, the dramatic, walk mm-hmm. back and dramatic reversal of policy that he sprung on everybody. I mean, what it really comes down to is that <laughs> if you thought um, it, it wasn't really a walk back and and the fact that it was not a walk back is because there really wasn't a walk forward. And And so if you want to, if you want to, if you want to invest a lot in these, you know, semantic shadings that was largely um, made up by Republicans, that yes, then it is a walk back. But but in fact, what makes it seem not really like a walk back, and I think that is basically the reality of the situation, is that everybody knew there was linkage. Everybody knew it. Democrats said it constantly. Uh, Republicans maybe weren't crazy about it, but they understood it. That was the, you know, that was the basis on which they made this deal. And he added this thing, well, I won't sign it if only one, but I mean, that is kind of moot because only one bill isn't going to come to his desk. And so he, he said that kind of, okay, I won't, veto it, but again, that was always like a notional thing. That was never, that was never a hypothetical that was going to come to pass. So in practice, he just he he I guess to the extent that to the extent that there there may be one Republican who felt not surprised, but maybe put in a bit of a tough position. Kind of you're making it a little too clear we're working together here. You're making it a little too clear that we are helping you indirectly do your do your reconciliation bill because you've got some moderates who want a bipartisan thing and kind of like, okay we're willing to do it. But don't say it quite that directly because that you're 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 putting me in a bad spot because you're 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 making me part of you getting this done. And kind of like for those people who kind of in some sense maybe genuinely felt that that it wasn't just kind of like a McConnell-Graham uh, put-up job, that kind of if you say, okay, I won't veto it, you know, kind of we'll toss you a little bone, even though, as you said, Kate, you you know, a fairly long statement basically saying, yep, they're linked. Right. And I'm definitely getting both.
1: And then, you know, Mitch McConnell kind of wasted no time in spinning the statement as a walk back and then called on Pelosi and Schumer to, you know, de-link the two pieces of legislation, basically asking... Give me back the power to make it more likely that reconciliation dies by taking away your leverage with the moderates in your caucus, basically, was the long yeah. story short of that statement.
0: So where do you where do you think this? I mean, like I said, it's not at all clear to me there were ever eleven senators supporting this thing. And what I've what has virtually all of those eleven, at least the ones who talk to the press, have put out statements like, "Oh, this was an outrage," and "Oh, we need assurances." Oh, and no, "Oh, whoa, whoa!" But no one has said, "All right, I'm done. I'm voting against this thing." And so, do we have a sense of kind of what what is where this is?
1: Well, it's funny because on top of kind of how fluid and rapidly changing the situation is, the Senate also left for a two week recess on Friday, so it's really hard to kind of nail and didn't down. And then they just come back from are. recess
0: like a week before.
1: Uh, The summer is riddled with recesses. We also have the big August one coming up. But um, you know, when they're kind of back in their states, that means you have to go through their spokespeople, which means you're not going to get a lot of information. So you know, it's not entirely clear to me. I think I have the same impression you do that there were kind of an initial flurry of well, I was blindsided by this, and then um, you know, I think uh, one of our writers kind of rounded up some some statements over the weekend of people. Republicans expressing, you know, gladness that Biden had, you know, clarified his remarks kind of thing. But, you know, I don't think that was still I don't think that it, I've seen the number that we would need to pass. So it's kind of And now that McConnell is orienting himself against it, that always throws things more into flux because you just don't have a lot of members who are willing to cross McConnell when he kind of points them in one direction.
0: Yeah. And it also goes it also goes both ways is that McConnell is not going to McConnell's also not going to get ahead of his caucus right so if he is kind of thumbs down that is that is a pretty good indication that that's where his caucus is and he's going to try to um make everybody stays on side in in kind of where the caucus wants to go so they both I, I know I'm not telling you this this is telling our listeners this you know it 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 goes both ways. He is both a, an indicator of, of where the caucus is and a kind of a director of where it is going to go. Now, the thing that, that struck me, um, was this, uh, Joe Manchin was on TV a couple days ago and he made this, what seemed like a kind of an offhand statement, but to me was in some ways the most significant thing that we have seen since that, um, since that press conference outside the White House, or was, was it outside or inside? Not that outside. this matters at all, but I'm, I'm losing, <laughs> losing, losing track. Um, is that he basically, the, the, I think it was Stephanie Rule uh, on MSNBC, but whoever it was basically said, you know, what's the deal? Is, you know, is, the, is the bipartisan deal done? Is that, you know, is the apple cart upset? And um, Manchin basically said, you know, look, we're, gonna, we're eventually probably going to have to pile a lot of this stuff into reconciliation. It is what it is. You know, we got to kind of work through that bipartisan thing. But what I the sum I took from that is he is not he is not waiting for, you know, Lindsey Graham to give the thumbs up to the Biden agenda. Uh, And and that is what is that that is the sort of the fundamental thing that is important to remember here. This is an argument among Democrats. It involves Republicans because the different Democrats have, have, have things that they want Republicans to do to make, you know, to kind of be part of, it's, it's sort of like, you know, you have a chess match being played between two Democrats and there are chess piece, Republican chess pieces, but, but the actual discussion is between Democrats. So Joe Manchin can always, you know, this doesn't involve, you know, the, the sacrosanct filibuster, this is kind of the squishier. We want to be nice. We want to be bipartisan. So, if 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 there are only six Republicans who want to support that bill and McConnell's turned against it, he can always say like, you know, okay, I, we had our deal, and like, you know, if you're pulling out of the deal, we're just going to do it all through reconciliation. Now, I'm not saying that is an easy thing that he just does that presto. I'm sure there's going to be a lot of drama and stuff like that. But that to me was a pretty a pretty important tell that he is not wanting to say, oh, you know, we we, everything is everything's got to stop where it is until we can beg and plead and get Lindsey Graham to sign on to this thing.
1: Yeah. And that kind of does lead into the other point I wanted to talk about with infrastructure is that there have been a couple comments from Democrats this week, um, particularly kind of about reconciliation that have struck me. The first being from uh, Senator Tim Kaine, who sits on the budget committee, who made a comment to reporters while um, he was the only senator presiding over the chamber because they need one one poor soul to do it while they're on recess. So they usually pick someone from you know Virginia or Maryland who can get there easily. Anyway, it was him. And he told reporters that if the bipartisan deal falls apart, that they're basically just going to wrap its proposals into the reconciliation bill. And, you know, kind of made a point of being like, we're going to have Democrat and Republican priorities in this package, which when I first saw it, I was kind of blown back on my heels because you're like, why? Why would you take kind of watered down proposals negotiated with Republicans And put it into a package that, you know, is not going to get any Republican votes. You know, why give them kind of a win and get nothing from them in return? Right. And and then I think a day later, um, Biden made some comments about basically saying there's not going to be any extra hard infrastructure money in reconciliation that is not part of the bipartisan deal kind of divorced from well i guess you know his in his hypothetical it's more the bipartisan deal is passing
0: right well but I think either in, way yeah
1: that's well, kind in, of the same thing
0: yeah i guess in some ways they are that is that is their way to kind of take any initiative away from republicans like as far as they're concerned yeah we got a deal it's passing nothing to talk about and if you know, if if we say that, and and Lindsey Graham goes out there and, and says something to the press and throws that out, well, okay, fine, we'll just pass the exact same thing. You know, the 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 bipartisan bill we all agreed to, we're just going to pile in into reconciliation and whatever. Now, here's the here's the question that I have though. It, uh, it seemed the, the big question to me, and in some cases, in in some ways, big because it is, it is so important, but also because it's sort of. It's it. It has not been entirely clear to me where it fits into the soft hard dichotomy. Is climate now? My general sense is that the the bipartisan deal is pretty light on the climate front. Um, and again, climate means lots of different things. I mean, climate. You know, if you're you're uh, you know surface rail is, you know, uh, light, light rail and, and is, is part of the climate equation, but so is, you know, retrofitting everybody's house, you know, that, that kind of all that kind of stuff. So what's the story on the climate's part of this?
1: Yeah, I would say in my conversations last week with progressives, particularly, you know, Bernie Sanders, who's the chairman of the budget committee, so has a lot of kind of power and influence over what the reconciliation bill looks like, have said, you know, unequivocally, you are not going to have the 50 votes you need for reconciliation unless we do climate change. So. And and is,
0: am I basically right that, that most of the, to the extent that this was a big, you know, a lot of climate stuff proposed, mostly that's not in the, in the bipartisan bill.
1: If at all. Yeah. Okay.
0: All right. All right. So yeah, I mean, I, I I kind of, I certainly know like a couple weeks ago there was, um, uh, Senator Whitehouse put out a statement kind of saying, Hey, I'm getting, I'm, I'm getting the feeling that climate is getting left out of the equation here. Um, and yeah, I mean, I kind of, I get the sense that, I mean, I don't know exactly what Biden was committing himself to there. Um, and we've got to remember that like, all these, you know, to, you know, you're sort of, you're getting the, you're getting the trains all to come through the station and the station is Joe Manchin. And Joe Manchin comes from a fossil fuel state. Now, having said that, there's fossil fuel states and there's fossil fuel states. He's from a coal state. And, 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 you know, the reality is for all of us who care deeply about climate, we need to get rid of coal but we can't but we need to also understand that getting rid of coal is a big deal when your state is to, you know is a coal state that's just a reality you've got to you know th- 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 there's certain people going to take the hit more than others but i guess my my the part of that that i'm a little unclear on is it it's no sweat off of anybody in west virginia's back if if you're if you're retrofitting you know retrofitting homes for climate change that has nothing to do with coal I mean it, it, nothing at all and you know to the extent you're pushing electric vehicles, coal creates electricity right We don't want it to create as much you know electric but, but a lot of this stuff really really has nothing to do with coal and I think at least that there was you know there was that there was that pretty surprising um, statement uh, a few months ago by the guy who's the head of the coal you know uh, United Mine Workers. You know, once one of the biggest, most powerful unions in the country, now a minuscule, you know, just there's not a lot of miners, uh, uh, uh left. Basically, he was for it. And at least as I interpreted it, he was for it, but wanted to basically kind of give Cole a little time to die, basically. And I think the phrase they used was like a just transition. Um and that's basically kind of like i think them realizing there's no future in the coal industry but you have tons of retirees who have pensions that are in various ways you know that need funding you have the current miners and you got to make them whole somehow um in any case i think we're going to have a big fight here in the relatively near future within the democratic party um where you've got a, you know, a, a lot of Senate Democrats, a lot of Democrats in, in Congress in general, and certainly around the countries, like, you know, we're not, we're not leaving climate out of this. We're just not. And, and I mean, just to me, the, the climate stuff is more important than the social spending stuff. I think you absolutely need both. But like, we could go another 10 years without big process on the carrying economy. I'm not at all saying that isn't hugely important. But we actually cannot go 10 years without this climate stuff. It is it is it's the difference between very necessary and existential. And um, I, I, you know, they're going to have to they're going to have to figure out a a way to make that work.
1: Yeah, I'm sure what it is. I don't know where the White House concern came from exactly, just because, like I say, Progressives have really not been coy about the fact that they're not gonna vote for reconciliation if there's not climate in it. But I wonder if, and this kind of ties into what we're talking about, on that same Sunday show hit that Manchin did that you referenced, he gave his ballpark as what he wants the reconciliation package to be at two trillion dollars. Yeah. You know, Bernie has been floating six trillion, though even he admitted, you know, it's probably not gonna be able to be that big. Yeah. But part of this kind of I think what's going to be a long and bloody road to getting this done is going to be fights on what gets cut because the package is going to have to be small enough that you get Joe Manchin on board, but big enough that you don't make progressives so mad that they won't vote for the package at all. And
0: and there, too, I think, you know, you had that piece a couple uh, maybe yesterday basically saying like, no, it's just the filibuster is just about. Kirsten Cinema and Joe Manchin. There aren't a bunch of like shadow people who aren't you know kind of coming clean or something like that. But on the do- on the on the scope of these programs thing, it's not just Joe Manchin and Kirsten Cinema. Six trillion dollars is a ton of money, and you are going to have a lot of Democrats uh, in Congress who are like, "Hey, that is that's that's too much." Three three trillion, four trillion, not six trillion. And as you said. Even Sanders gets that. Wisely, he's starting. He's not negotiating against himself. Right. He's he's starting with what he thinks is necessary. So I am cautiously optimistic that you know he's putting out two. Again, Manchin's not going to negotiate against himself either. You come together three, maybe four, and you you know and and uh, and yeah, there's going to be a lot of. A lot of stuff there, um, but uh, you know, it's kind of it's it's sort of. I, I it it feels to me like my thinking is with uh, with uh, for the people act about gerrymandering. Like gerrymandering is the thing you need that. The other stuff is super important. You absolutely need the gerrymandering stuff. And to me, kind of like again, climate and climate and hard infrastructure in my mind are almost they're the same thing. You cannot. You cannot accomplish anything on on climate without funding the new way people will drive around. Right. will get around. Um, so that's that's hanging out there. That's that's going to be a big deal. We we'll probably yeah. get to get to questions, shouldn't we?
1: Yes. Um, briefly, we were going to just note, and I'll run through it really fast. The uh, January 6th select committee, which they're yes. voting on today. Um, Long story short, there it's going to be 13 members. Pelosi gets final say on all of them. Five of them she's going to consult with McCarthy uh, about. And then the chair gets unilateral subpoena power. Which is a, a change from the independent commission, which required Republican cooperation to issue subpoenas, which a lot of people were like, OK, well, this is going to be a pretty big problem right off the bat. So in all the, in those ways. And it ways, was a huge
0: opportunity for Republicans.
1: Right. Because so they think, had
0: a veto over anything.
1: Exactly. So I think in those ways, a lot of people's issues with the commission have been kind of uh, addressed in, in this version. Um, we'll, we'll probably see it like you say. Uh, pass along party lines. I can't imagine they're going to be honestly more than maybe five defections from uh, House Republicans this time. And, you know, kind of after this event, which is not, you know, it doesn't have a a super lot of suspense because we pretty much know how it's going to go. But after that, all eyes are going to be on who they pick to staff the committee, basically, to fill out the committee. Um, And, you know, I've been in touch with a, a senior Democratic aide who kind of confirmed to me that Pelosi is reserving the right to kind of veto any of McCarthy's suggestions. So that's going to be an interesting dynamic. We'll see um, if he tries to suggest people who are, you know, big lie spreaders themselves um, who Pelosi will pick. There's been some uh, some chatter that she might want to pick a Republican herself, but that she would pick, you know, a, a Liz Cheney or an Adam Kinzinger or um, which then will set off another flurry of speculation about if that person that she picks who accepts the role is not running for reelection because that's kind of, you know, a potential big blow against Dating their political themselves future. themselves deeper, yeah, yeah, right. yeah. Although so it's, anyway. also,
0: it's also potentially sort of an off-ramp for someone. Right. If they know they're going to get driven out of office, like right. that's, you know, kind of an opportunity.
1: So those are all kind of the next steps that we'll be watching um, after the commission passes this afternoon. And, you know, that's something that in future episodes, I'm sure we will return to and analyze. But in the meantime, on to questions. Um, Our first is from Josh uh, saying regarding Josh Marshall's post asking why McConnell let the infrastructure talks get this far. Is it possible he didn't have a choice? meaning if he had made it clear from the beginning that it's a tiny bipartisan deal that doesn't come close to what Dems were asking for or nothing. Would that have risked pushing Manchin to accept doing everything via reconciliation? At least now he can push the double-cross nonsense and hope it riles up West Virginia enough to spook Manchin.
0: I think think that's right. I mean, look, I, I talked to right after the, or actually just before that press conference where they announced the deal, where the deal was out there, they hadn't had the press conference, but we knew what was happening. I was talking to a person who's longtime staffer, you know, someone who was up there for years and years and years, uh, retired from up there relatively recently. And this person was like, what doesn't fit here? Like, there is no way that McConnell's supporting this. So how did... How did we get here? And um that is a basic question. But I think the answer is look, a lot of a lot of McConnell's genius at this kind of stuff is just playing for time. And as the as the reader noted, he if he just said, okay, you know, here's our offer, one dollar, he's gonna kind of he's going to push mansion and cinema in a, into a position where he's just kind of you know shoving it down their throats the kind of like no there is absolutely no deal absolutely nothing and everything goes into reconciliation and there are even in this even in this you know uh uh degraded version of the Republican Party there's still some people there who say hey man <laughs> that's not okay we 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 need an infrastructure bill we at least don't want to be appear to be you know, saying no to any, to anything. So I think he is, uh, you know, was, was kind of letting these, letting these, uh, talks proceed. And, you know, McConnell is not the dictator of the, of the Senate Republican caucus. It's a consensus position. And I think he was managing all those things and they get to a deal. And I think that is, is not necessarily where he wanted to be, but okay. And keep playing for time. It's not really a deal. It's a framework. So there's a lot of time to play games. And I think they kind of, it was a little off course in his mind. And he sees Biden say this thing and they're like, ah, okay, here we go. Here we go. Let's try to blow it up. And that's what happened. Um, So to a certain extent, yes, he had no choice, Um, but uh, he's always playing for time and no deal is really a deal until it's voted on. So he had a lot of time left to play and we we see that he immediately came up with a pretext why it was a betrayal and he's going to pull back the football. So I think that's basically, basically it.
1: I do think there also might have been some underestimating of the toughness of Democratic leaders here, because even though they always planned to do these two things, the bipartisan and the reconciliation, they came out really, really strong after this deal was reached, saying unequivocally... And and before
0: the press conference. Yeah. Like, right, to kind of queue up the press conference.
1: Right, saying unequivocally, we will not kind of let this bipartisan bill pass, you know, it as this big achievement and then wait to do reconciliation down the road, thus endangering reconciliation, thus giving moderates an off ramp. Um, even if it, it still means, you know, the bipartisan bill is still going to be notching a legislative victory for Biden and for Democrats, you know, and giving Biden kind of the bipartisan bona fides that he loves. Mm-hmm. But, you know, they kind of, I think in this way, really kind of stood by the progressives um, and said, We're not going to leave you out to dry. These two things are happening together. This is a tandem exercise. And for a party that I think sometimes falls on its sword a bit, it was, you know, it was pretty gutsy. And I think McConnell might have uh, underestimated that.
0: I think they hang tougher than he expected. Mm -hmm. I think that's right. And, and that is for everybody who's gotten kind of like, you know, demoralized and everything, that is important to that is important to see that he kind of thought that I'm gonna roll them here and 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 they queued up that press conference saying, you know what? Nope, you're not right. and, and and some of that is, yeah, to saying to progressives like, you know, because everybody's got to hold hands really tight in a party in a situation like this to basically them saying like, you know, yes, it's this is going to you're going to feel a little wobbly here. Like, you know, does anybody have our backs? We're saying like, yeah, 100 percent that that thing you are afraid of where the moderates get together and cut a deal to Republicans and that that's it. That is not going to happen. And that is I think that is an example both of 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 giving hard reassurance to the party's progressive wing, but also just generally, you're not going to pull that bullshit you pulled with us back in in 2009 and 2010. We learned that right. lesson. It's not going to happen.
1: And I think it it is important because just being at the hill and watching the kind of um, emotional state of progressives by the time they left for recess, there just there wasn't a lot of panic. They were kind of in a state of you know, absolutely determined, like we will not be hosed by moderates on this, but it wasn't a position of, you know, I'm, I'm really worried we got to get leadership on board. It was more, you know, I would say they left for recess as unified as one could possibly hope for when you're talking about a unified caucus that includes Joel Manchin and Bernie Sanders, mm-hmm. you know.
0: Yeah, I mean, my sense is that they they kind of, after This seven day, you know, this seven day period that we're talking about, um, kind of everybody, everybody seems to feel and be telegraphing kind of like, okay, there's going to be a lot of bumps coming and I'm not going to get everything I want, but like we've, we've sort of got a plan here together. No one's going to get, no one's going to get sort of like booted off the train before it gets to the station you know, we're all going to get bumped together. We're all going to lose a few things, but we're kind of in this together. And that's really, you know, as you say, that's what you need as a caucus.
1: Right. I mean, and we'll see what happens when we get into the particulars of the bill, but it's been an entire term of catering to Joe Manchin and the moderates for obvious political reasons. But progressives are not the ones who have been putting the brakes on Biden's agenda, you know, demanding, more in line with their own values, they've been the ones who are kind of been team players so far.
0: Yeah, I mean, I I think the other the other point to, in fairness, to remember there is it has been a six months of catering to Joe Manchin, in the interests of passing, what's basically the progressives' agenda. Totally, I, you know, Bernie Sanders. A lot of our readers are going to say, "Hey, there's a bunch of other stuff we wanted too," but I mean. Biden put forward a very aggressive, very progressive agenda. So, so yes, tons of, tons of, you know, butlering uh, Joe Manchin. But again, in the interest of, of a bill that is not the maximal bill for progressives, but a lot. It is, right. it is their agenda that, that is what's getting worked on here. Right. All right. So next question.
1: Our next question is from Joe, who says, in the latest podcast, J- uh, Josh made a reference to the mainstream D.C. media being wired for Republicans. He's made the same point a number of times in the editor's blog and posts about the media running with the GOP's nonsensical Biden conned us infrastructure whining. This is pretty clearly true. But why?
0: You know, it's funny when I, when I, when, when Kate showed me this question, I thought great question, but then I thought, oh no, because I'm not sure I have a great answer for it. So (laughs) I'm kind of setting myself up, but here's my answer. I think that, uh, when I started saying this was almost like 20 years ago and 20 years ago, it's important to remember where things were in the late nineties. You had a two term, two term democratic president, but you had, you were coming off a few decades of. The Nixon presidency, the Reagan presidency, the first Bush presidency—Republicans uh, Dem- uh, took over um, took over the Congress in 1995. It, it's not just my thing. Is it's not it's not the DC press. It's DC. DC is wired for Republicans. And 15, 20 years ago, that was to a great extent because dominance of the government. Leads to dominance of the city. People go and they become the 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 lobbyists and all the kind of stuff. And it was just you know wired for Republican assumptions, wired with Republican personnel. Blah 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 blah. Now, in the interim, we have had uh, we had the Obama presidency. We had at least brief periods of of big Democratic majorities in Congress. So that part of the argument is a little is a little more attenuated even though it is still much more true than one might think. Um but the other part of it is I think it is also just an artifact kind of carrying more of that weight now is the kind of the both sides structure of mainstream media political reporting which is to say that if you if your mindset is you basically have to take what each side is saying at face value, because both sides, that gives some inherent advantage to the, to the group that is willing to make stuff up more. So I think that that is, a, that is a, greater, a, a much greater part of it now, but it is also that thing of the personnel who runs the city. Um, and what sense of expectations um, they run on. Let me give an example. I have little doubt that if you polled most of the people who work at Politico and Axios, they're not partisan Republicans. They're not partisan Democrats. But I mean, their basic set of like, you know, do you support this? Do you support that? You know, all these kind of things. They probably do lean Democratic. But that doesn't translate into Democratic assumptions in reporting, nor should it. If anything, it leads the opposite direction. It actually, there's a, there's a compensation thing. Uh, but whatever, whatever the reasons, it was very striking. After that Biden press conference last week, after, um, after Lindsey Graham made a statement, after Mitch McConnell made a statement about the betrayal and stunned and shocked and whatever, I spent a lot of time, certainly too much time on Twitter, just kind of seeing what everybody's saying and you know falling prey to my ego and adding my thoughts kind of too much of the time and what was striking is like all the reporters that i follow and they're the people who work at these places they're all saying like oh come on we knew there was linkage Blah blah, blah. you know kind of oh my god what 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 is this what is that the what, oh my god and then all those places ran articles basically saying oh my god the republicans were just caught off guard by this stunned <laughs> so you see it translate and i had some people say well you know it's it's uh the publications are are owned by big money people and they're Republicans. Well, yeah, but that's not it it doesn't that's it's it's not a direct correlation. So uh I I don't feel like I I the reasons why that is the case now are really multifaceted and and Hard to explain and also hard to understand and and I don't mean like hard for me to explain, hard for you to understand, hard for me to understand, uh, but that's I think the best quick answer I can give to the question
1: yeah, and i'd add you know i've have been in the journalism world for you know a shorter amount of time than Josh, but in kind of the modern, especially the Trump era, I think there was this feeling that obviously the press was under attack all the time um and you know calling the press biased and stooges of the left and, you know, the the DNC and all that kind of stuff. And I do think there was this attempt to show if journalists were also tough yeah. on Republicans, that you could win those people back, that you could show, no, we're not. We're not working for Democrats. See, we're you mean tough also, on Demo- t-
0: also tough on Democrats. Oh, that's what I meant. Yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah, we're,
1: yeah. If we go after you know, if we criticize Biden the same amount we criticize Trump, then you will see unequivocally that we are neutral, that we are um, fair, that we are balanced. And the reality is, it doesn't matter how many articles that, you know, these outlets run criticizing Biden. You know, the people who have kind of written off everyone but OAN as fake news and an apparatus of the Democrats, is never going to come around so these efforts are kind of fruitless but you do have this effort to show to kind of disprove trump's notion that that journalists are working for democrats by redoubling efforts to criticize democrats or you know to to kind of highlight their mistakes um And I think it's kind of all in search of proving this balance that is pretty damaging, ultimately, especially now while we have one party that, you know, the majority of it is pretty actively working to undermine the democracy. So just treating that party like they're just the the other side of the coin to the Democrats and going after Democrats to show that you're a neutral arbiter, it just does have, I think, dangerous knock-on effects beyond kind of the fruitless attempt to convince people of written off the press as nefarious that we're actually not.
0: Yeah, I mean I and I would say for with the, with the with the benefit or the burden of of longer historical experience that what you were describing about the Trump era is just a more extreme and concentrated version of really the last 40 to 50 years in American politics. That you know Trump was saying uh you know fake news Uh, working for the, you know, kind of lock them up. I mean, you know, really kind of crazy, you know, the sort of stuff you expect to, to, uh, you know, hear from like a right-wing autocrat in a non-democratic country. But before that, Republicans for decades have been saying the biased mainstream media, you know, liberal bias, blah, 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 blah. Again, a very, a much softer thing uh, but still, creating that dynamic where you have the mainstream media reacting to that by trying to bend over backwards to prove they're not biased, and you you have this the same dynamic you describe, which is to say, there's always this. Well, maybe we'll prove it. We'll we'll you know we'll 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 uh, we'll go we'll bend over backwards. We'll you know every time we can. there's any legitimate criticism, we'll we'll criticize Democrats and maybe we'll prove it. Well, obviously you're not going to prove it because it's not based on a misunderstanding in the first place. It's just working the refs and you just keep working the refs. Um, So there is, as you say, there is this dynamic coming off Trump. Look, we were never, we were never anti-Trump. We were just hardcore journalists. So we're going to show it. We're going to prove it now by showing we can be just as tough on Democrats. That's exactly what it is. But That's also exactly what it's been for the last 45 years or so, just with, uh, you know, dialed up to six or seven and Trump dialed it up to 11, basically. But the dynamic is the same. Anyway, all right. So let me, as as we conclude this episode of the Josh Marshall Podcast, let me remind you that the Josh Marshall Podcast is brought to you by Grady's Cold Brew Ice Coffee and their uber awesome cold brew kit, which you can buy. And remember that you can get 25% off your first order of Grady's at grady'scoldbrew.com with promo code TPM. All right. All
1: right. Remember, send us your questions and your podcast theme song submissions to talk at talkingpointsmemo.com. Thanks for both of those. We've gotten really good ones in both those categories. So keep them coming.
0: Cool. All right. right, See you next week. Bye.